Section 18 of England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The World's Story, Volume 10, England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 18. The Fall of King Monmouth, 1685 by Charles Dickens. James II was a Roman Catholic, and the country preferred to have a Protestant ruler. Some were eager to give the crown to the Duke of Monmouth, an illegitimate son of Charles II, who was a Protestant. King Monmouth, as he was called by his supporters, came over from Holland fully expecting to be made sovereign of England. The Editor. He immediately set up his standard in the marketplace, and proclaimed the king a tyrant and a popish usurper, and I know not what else, charging him not only with what he had done, which was bad enough, but with what neither he nor anybody else had done, such as setting fire to London and poisoning the late king. Raising some four thousand men by these means, he marched on to Taunton, where there were many Protestant dissenters who were strongly opposed to the Catholics. Here both the rich and poor turned out to receive him. Ladies waved a welcome to him from all the windows as he passed along the streets, Flowers were strewn in his way, and every compliment and honor that could be devised was showered upon him. Among the rest, twenty young ladies came forward in their best clothes and in their brightest beauty, and gave him a Bible ornamented with their own fair hands, together with other presents. Encouraged by this homage, he proclaimed himself king and went on to Bridgewater. But here the government troops, under the Earl of Feversham, were close at hand, and he was so dispirited at finding that he made but few powerful friends after all, that it was a question whether he should disband his army and endeavor to escape. It was resolved, at the instance of that unlucky Lord Grey, to make a night attack on the king's army, as it lay encamped on the edge of a morass called Sedgemoor. The horsemen were commanded by the same unlucky lord, who was not a brave man. He gave up the battle almost at the first obstacle, which was a deep drain, and although the poor countrymen who had turned out for Monmouth fought bravely with scythes, poles, pitchforks, and such poor weapons as they had, they were soon dispersed by the trained soldiers and fled in all directions. When the Duke of Monmouth himself fled was not known in the confusion, but the unlucky Lord Grey was taken early next day, and then another of the party was taken, who had confessed that he had parted from the Duke only four hours before. Strict search being made, he was found disguised as a peasant, hidden in a ditch under fern and nettles, with a few peas in his pocket which he had gathered in the fields to eat. The only other articles he had upon him were a few papers and little books, one of the latter being a strange jumble in his own writing of charms, songs, recipes, and prayers. He was completely broken. He wrote a miserable letter to the king, beseeching and entreating to be allowed to see him. When he was taken to London and conveyed bound into the king's presence, he crawled to him on his knees and made a most degrading exhibition. As James never forgave or relented towards anybody, he was not likely to soften towards the issuer of the Lyme proclamation, so he told the suppliant to prepare for death. On the 15th of July, 1685, this unfortunate favorite of the people was brought out to die on Tower Hill. The crowd was immense and the tops of all the houses were covered with gazers. He had seen his wife, the daughter of the Duke of Buccleuch, in the tower, and had talked much of a lady whom he loved far better, the Lady Harriet Wentworth, 
who was one of the last persons he remembered in this life. Before laying his head upon the block he felt the edge of the axe, and told the executioner that he feared it was not sharp enough, and that the axe was not heavy enough. On the executioner replying that it was of the proper kind, the duke said, I pray you have a care, and do not use me so awkwardly as you used my lord Russell. The executioner, made nervous by this and trembling, struck once, and merely gashed him in the neck. Upon this, the Duke of Monmouth raised his head and looked to the man reproachfully in the face. Then he struck twice, then thrice, and then threw down the axe and cried out in a voice of horror that he could not finish the work. The sheriffs, however, threatening him with what should be done to himself if he did not, he took it up again and struck a fourth and a fifth time. Then the wretched head at last fell off, and James, Duke of Monmouth, was dead in the thirty-sixth year of his age. He was a showy, graceful man with many proper qualities, and had found much favor in the open hearts of the English. The atrocities committed by the government, which followed this Monmouth rebellion, form the blackest and most lamentable page in English history. The poor peasants, having been dispersed with great loss, and their leaders having been taken, one would think that the implacable king might have been satisfied. But no, he let loose upon them, among other intolerable monsters, a Colonel Kirk, who had served against the Moors, and whose soldiers, called by the people Kirk's lambs because they bore a lamb upon their flag as the emblem of Christianity, were worthy of their leader. The atrocities committed by these demons in human shape are far too horrible to be related here. It is enough to say that besides most ruthlessly murdering and robbing them, and ruining them by making them buy their pardons at the price of all they possessed, it was one of Kirk's favorite amusements, as he and his officers sat drinking after dinner and toasting the king to have batches of prisoners hanged outside the windows for the company's diversion, and that when their feet quivered in the convulsions of death, he used to swear that they should have music to their dancing, and would order the drums to beat and the trumpets to play. The detestable king informed him, as an acknowledgment of these services, that he was very well satisfied with his proceedings. But the king's great delight was in the proceedings of Jeffreys, now a peer, who went down into the west with four other judges to try persons accused of having had any share in the rebellion. The king pleasantly called this Jeffreys' campaign. The people down in that part of the country remember it to this day as the bloody assize. It began at Winchester, where a poor deaf old lady, Mrs. Alicia Lyle, the widow of one of the judges of Charles I, who had been murdered abroad by some royalist assassins, was charged with having given shelter in her house to two fugitives from Sedgemoor. Three times the jury refused to find her guilty, until Jeffreys bullied and frightened them into that false verdict. When he had extorted it from them, he said, Gentlemen, if I had been one of you and she had been my own mother, I would have found her guilty, as I dare say he would. He sentenced her to be burned alive that very afternoon. The clergy of the cathedral and some others interfered in her favor, and she was beheaded within a week. As a high mark of his approbation, the king made Jeffreys Lord Chancellor, and he then went on to Dorchester, to Exeter, to Taunton, and to Wells. It is astonishing when we read of the enormous injustice and barbarity of this beast to know that no one struck him dead on the judgment seat. It was enough for any man or woman to be accused by an enemy before Jeffreys to be found guilty of high treason. One man who pleaded not guilty, he ordered to be taken out of court upon the instant and hanged. 
and this so terrified the prisoners in general that they mostly pleaded guilty at once. At Dorchester alone, in the course of a few days, Jeffreys hanged eighty people, besides whipping, transporting, imprisoning, and selling as slaves great numbers. He executed in all two hundred and fifty, or three hundred. These executions took place among the neighbors and friends of the sentenced, in thirty-six towns and villages. Their bodies were mangled, steeped in cauldrons of boiling pitch and tar, and hung up by the roadsides, in the streets, over the very churches. The sight and smell of heads and limbs, the hissing and bubbling of the infernal cauldrons, and the tears and terrors of the people were dreadful beyond all description. One rustic, who was forced to steep the remains in the black pot, was ever afterwards called Tom Boyleman. The hangman has ever since been called Jack Ketch, because a man of that name went hanging and hanging all day long in the train of Jeffreys. You will hear much of the horrors of the great French Revolution. Many and terrible they were, there is no doubt, but I know of nothing worse done by the maddened people of France in that awful time than was done by the highest judge in England with the express approval of the King of England in the bloody assize. Nor was even this all. Jeffreys was as fond of money for himself as of misery for others, and he sold pardons wholesale to fill his pockets. The King ordered at one time a thousand prisoners to be given to certain of his favorites, in order that they might bargain with them for their pardons. The young ladies of Taunton, who had presented the Bible, were bestowed upon the maids of honor at court, and those precious ladies made very hard bargains with them indeed. When the bloody assize was at its most dismal height, the king was diverting himself with horse races in the very place where Mrs. Lyle had been executed. When Jeffreys had done his worst and came home again, he was particularly complimented in the Royal Gazette, and when the king heard that through drunkenness and raging he was very ill, his odious majesty remarked that such another man could not easily be found in England. Besides all this, a former sheriff of London named Cornish was hanged within sight of his own house after an abominably conducted trial for having had a share in the Rye House plot on evidence given by Rumsey, which that villain was obliged to confess was directly opposed to the evidence he had given on the trial of Lord Russell. And on the very same day, a worthy widow named Elizabeth Gaunt was burned alive at Tyburn for having sheltered a wretch who himself gave evidence against her. She settled the fuel about herself with her own hands, so that the flames should reach her quickly, and nobly said with her last breath that she had obeyed the sacred command of God to give refuge to the outcast and not to betray the wanderer. End of section 18. This recording is in the public domain.